Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy and uh, yep, you guessed it, the topic of the day is of course COVID and it probably will be for a while now. But you can trust the Radiotherapy team to get you the inside information on the latest news because we work in a hospital and we know people who know lots of stuff. Dr. Sarah McGuinness is an academic infectious disease physician. She currently holds dual positions as a consultant physician in infectious diseases at the Alfred Hospital and as a lecturer in clinical epidemiology at Monash University. Her research focuses on improving ways to prevent and treat infectious diseases in mobile populations, that's travellers, immigrants and refugees, and she is the current chair of the International Society of Travel Medicine Digital Communications Committee. That's a mouthful. As of COVID, she has been seconded to the Department of Health's contact tracing team. And really, we just cannot wait to ask her what's involved in her new job. Associate Professor Tom Kotzimbos is a respiratory physician specialising in cystic fibrosis and lung transplantation at the Alfred Hospital. He is also a scientist with a keen interest in viruses and immunology. As head of the Thoracic Society's task force on H1N1 influenza, that was a couple of years ago, he is in a frontline position to comment on where we are up to in the pandemic and the science behind the clinical manifestations of the illness. And that's something I'm really keen to hear about. He's also a philosopher and writer, and if we have time, we might get him talking about those two other passions. Rich Stevens, a president of the Stuttering Association for the Young, will be giving us an update on the latest activities from that fine organisation. And Dr G-Spot will be joining us. But unfortunately, like our guests, it will have to be remotely, and it's and uh, she's going to be talking about gardening and the effect gardening can have, can have on body image. Everybody's favourite healthcare worker, Nurse EpiPen, is in the studio with me this morning, and I can't think of anybody I'd prefer the, to share this uh, 12 metre square box with, maybe 10 square metres box. We've washed our hands, wiped down the surfaces and changed the microphone socks. <laughs> we dink and we have. So we're feeling particularly hygienic for the show today. So stick with me, Dr. Malpractice, for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Epi. Pen, you're on mic three. Okay, good morning to there we everyone. Go. Sorry and I feel very weird because I am looking at Rob's, or Mal, practices sock, <laughs> and it looks like a sock, po- po- uh, some weird sock puppet. I just want to put some buttons and some eyes. And we and should some... tell people that we've covered the microphones with our own personal eyes, or my. Sock. Explorer Sock. Explorer Blues, uh, size 11. We are going to bring onto the line uh, Dr. G-Spot. Let's see if this works. Dr. G-Spot. Hello, Dr. Malpractice and EpiPen. Lovely to hear from you. Hi there. Great to have you on the line. You're... uh, you're coming through very, very clearly, i got to say. Um, That's uh, great. What a bumper show you've got lined up. I can't wait to hear more. We, 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 you know, we get uh, a plethora of guests on the show, just as uh, there are technical issues with the computer system and there are only two of us <laughs> in the studio and we're going to have to do phone interviews. But, yeah, that's life. Makes it interesting. So tell us about gardening and body image because it's a really interesting association between those two. 
Yes, absolutely. I, I was reading an article very recently in Eco-Psychology called Body Image Benefits of Allotment Gardening by Viren Swami. And just in case you're not sure, an allotment is a small area of public land that you can rent, which can be used to grow fruit, veg and anything else your heart desires. So we already know from our research that being in a natural environment improves mental health. But this study looks specifically at body image and smaller natural environments, which may be more accessible for people living in bigger cities. And in the study, they compared people who spent time in allotments with those who didn't. And they found that gardeners had significantly higher levels of body appreciation, significantly higher levels of body pride, and significantly higher levels of appreciation for their body's functionality, so what their body does for them. So I thought in the time of COVID-19, where we're being strongly encouraged to stay home, spending time in any patches of greenery you have access to around your home can be beneficial for your body image and well-being in general. Jeez, uh, but what happens if you don't have a garden? Like most people live in apartments yes. and places like that. What do you That's a great question, Dr. Malpractice. And we've even found that um, looking at pictures of natural scenes can be helpful. Um, I'm not sure if this extends to any fake plants. I think that study still needs to be done. But I think it's just immersing yourself mm-hmm. in a natural environment however you can, whether it's through sounds, sights, um, it can all be beneficial for your mental health. Well, Dr. G, um, I did a whole heap of gardening the other day and with all the sunshine and rain, it's now filled with weeds, so I have to go back out there again. <laughs> See, I think, I mean, I think it's all just perpetuating your good mental health, EpiPen. I, <laughs> I think those weeds are there to, to keep you going in your natural environment. Ugh. You know, I was—I caught myself looking at our Apple TV screen saver the other day because it had these beautiful pictures of nature, and I was just transfixed by it. It was, as you say, you can get just drawn into pictures of green. It doesn't actually have to be a physical garden. Absolutely, you can just look outside, and if you have any access to any greenery, that that would be enough. Or just pictures on your uh, screensaver, as you said, Doctor Malpractice. Yeah, and and what about growing some herbs and some vegetables and things we can eat? How good is that? I agree. I think these are perfect times to be uh, getting our green thumbs out and growing our own produce. G-Spot, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I appreciate you ta- I, taking the time. I was just going to say, Dr. Malpractice, yeah. could I talk about very, very quickly a quick study that the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre is running? Indeed you can, and you know that uh, you'll forgive me for not bringing that up because we talked about it before, <laughs> so I apologise. That is okay. You've got a sock on your microphone, I believe. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I, I and on his head. Real, oh, I can tell it's going really well there. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity. So Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre, we're running a global online survey looking at how COVID-19 might be impacting people's mental health. Um, So we can work out how best to assist people not only during the pandemic but also afterwards so we know what to expect. It's open to anyone aged 18 and over anywhere in the universe, quite literally. 
We're hoping for a big response over the Easter long weekend, so we'd really love for our listeners to help us out. You certainly won't regret it. If you're keen, you can find out more details on our website, which is www.maprc.org.au. That's www.maprc.org.au. We're also on Facebook and Twitter under um, MAPRC as well. Basically, just Google MAPRC. And you'll find us. Um, hoping you might all uh, hit us up with your online survey responses. Thank yeah. you all very much. Thanks, G Spot. And hopefully, uh, next time we we talk, uh, you'll be in the studio with us. Cheers. That would be wonderful. Have a great show, guys. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Rich, are you there? Hello, Hello. Dr. Mark. Ah, terrific. Thank you so much for joining us and apologies for the technical issues that we've been having today. It's all good. It's all good. Now, uh, last time we spoke to you, um, you were telling us about some of the fantastic programs that you're running with uh, Stuttering. uh, Australia for the Young. Tell us, tell us some more about what's been going on there. Yeah, sure. So the last time we spoke, um, I think it was, I think we were October. So in that meantime, um, we we kind of went through our first, um, um, our first creative arts program, which was the My Share project, which accumulated in our showcase event um, down at Grant Street Theatre um, that yeah. involved four young people who started creating. Um, their performance pieces, uh, which was unique to them. Um, it could have been a short play, it could have been a movie trailer, a dance skit. That was involving four young children uh, who stutter. We came back after Christmas, and then we were just going through our art exhibition project, which was basically an eight-week program where young people who stutter had the chance to create unique artistic pieces. We had some amazing pieces being made um, by our eight young people who stutter now. Um, that was like spray painting, calligraphy, sculptures. Um, unfortunately, a week before the showcase event, yeah. um, down on Grant Street Theatre again, um, where the DCA is located, we had to um, postpone our event because of COVID, really. We made the yeah. call early to yeah. postpone. Um, so unfortunately, that's on hold at the moment. Um, we, we did have a programme that was due to start um, in May, which is a playwriting programme. Um, which was one of the big things that we do at Stay Australia, allowing our young people to take a full role as a director to create their own short play um, over over 20 minutes or half an hour. Now, I've got to um, say, Rich, Rich I'm, as a playwright, I, I say that sort of <laughs> advisedly, as a playwright, I, I was really interested in this project. Um, how, how did you actually think of doing that? Because it's such a great idea. Well, it's kind of like, so our parents' organization um, is based in America. Yep. So I've spent a lot of time in America, and that's what I brought the charity over here. Yep. And the founder called Taro Alexander, he was an actor. Um, oh, right, he's a right. person um, who stutters, and he was based in D.C. He moved to New York, um, I think it was about 20 years ago now. And he just used his skills in the creative arts to work with young people to allow them a platform to share their voice, to build confidence in themselves and build confidence in themselves as people who stutter. So um, I've taken that program over here. And it's just a great program to see these young people um, who have never probably acted, never created a play, to really come into our workshops and to learn, you know, how to create these characters. And the beautiful thing is they have the full range and they can be serious plays, 
They could be plays about a jelly monster. It could be anything that they want. And it's more about the process and not the product, really. It's about the process of them just yeah. being able to create and share. I guess it's a, it's a form of expression, isn't it? And it's a way of getting what is inside, what's inside your head, what's inside your heart out there in a different way than just using, uh, you know, conversation. Exactly, yeah. Because a lot of our young people who stutter uh, probably don't get the chance um, in their schools, in colleges. They probably want to raise the hand um, to volunteer for plays or to take that chance, but sometimes they're not um, provided that opportunity or just they're too um, embarrassed or shy or scared yeah. or fearful. So in our environment, they are free to be who they want to be, free to express themselves how they want to express. And yeah, and it's just great to see them really to really build something which is purely unique that yeah. they have full control over. Yeah, yeah, that, that, exactly. That sense of control, that you have some control over that, that expression, I think is just so important, as you've said to me before. Rich, um, how has COVID uh, impacted um, your program and, and what are you doing now? Yeah, so a lot of the work that we do is the contact um, from a face-to-face kind of point of view. So a lot of and as I said about our process, really, is when you take all the wallpaper away, like the VC in the program, it's really bringing young people who stutter together to meet other people who stutter, because that's one of the things that, as young people who stutter, you, you don't really get the chance, and you think it's you know only yeah. you in the world who stutter. So we are bringing it online. We are keeping that connection online. Um, every Saturday, we're doing a social hang for a couple of hours um, on Zoom. Um, I'm doing the connections individually for young people in the week, and then... Um, Together, we're all coming together like volunteers and young people, and we're just doing our games and activities online. We're creating these um, shares, people are able to share online, and it's really fun. You know, yeah. we're, we're doing like charades and, and just show and tells, and it's just great to see that connection, really. And it's great to see so many people on Zoom on the screen yeah. all at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you must get a buzz out of that. Tell me, uh, Rich, we, we've, we've um, got to wind up, but if people want to get in contact with Say, how should they go about doing it? Yeah, of course. So we have the website, uh, which will be um, sayaustralia.org.au. Um, there are links on there to contact. You can contact me personally. Um, my personal um, address will be rich at sayaustralia.org.au. Um, we're on Instagram, um, on Facebook. Our handles, I've just learned that terminology, our <laughs> handles are... Um, the sayaustralia.org.au I'm trying to get down with this new technology yeah, um, so you can connect us online check our Instagram page because there's links to things going on in America some virtual stuff as well yeah. so so yeah um, if you're a young person who stutters or a parent or anyone who's interested just come and connect with us and I'm always available to chat and share and talk more about our organisation and opportunities Rich uh, more power to you and to Say Australia and uh, we'll catch up again uh, soon Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Dr. Mal. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay healthy. And thanks for the opportunity again to come on. Thank you so much. Always. Cheers, See you, Rich. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We've got uh, Dr. Sarah McGuinness on the line. Sarah, are you there? Yes, hello. Oh, terrific. Uh, the was working. This is really good. Dr. Mal here. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I hear that you're at work. I am. 
So, Sarah, just could you just run us through what you're doing there and what exactly your day looks like, your room, who's with you, what's in front of you? Sure. So uh, I've been in the Department of Health and Human Services for about a month now and I've been doing a range of different things, uh, mostly in the case, contact and outbreak management space. Yeah. So I'd spend some of my time providing phone advice to other clinicians, particularly GPs, um, some time reviewing and updating our guidelines. And I also help to investigate clusters of disease, which involves disease detective work, like contact tracing. What does that mean? So contact tracing is essentially um, two things. The first is trying to figure out who a sick person, so in the case of COVID, the person who has COVID, um, to try and find out who they caught the illness from. At the moment in Victoria, we can still trace most cases back to another confirmed case or to high-risk activities like having recently travelled overseas or been on a cruise ship. And then the second part is to find out who that case has been in contact with while they were infectious. And because someone can incubate this disease for a week or more before they show symptoms, we have to help the case to think back and try and remember all the people they've been recently in contact with, which can sometimes be tricky work. Um, that, and we're particularly... Sorry. Can that be random people as well? Is in a crowd? We're, or? we're particularly interested in the people the case has had close contact with yep. because they're the ones who are at highest risk of infection. Yeah. And we typically think of that mm. as people who they've had 15 minutes face-to-face contact with, you know, within uh, a, a 1.5 metre radius, 15 minutes or more, or people that they've spent more prolonged time with. So, for instance, if you're in the same room in a house a couple of hours. So the risk of exposing someone in a crowd of people is generally pretty low and we don't mm. intensely follow up um, people in a crowd. Sarah, can we just get a, a, a kind of a picture of what your work environment looks like? Could you describe it to us? I mean, are there, is it like mission control? Are there banks of computer screens and, you know, people running around with papers spilling onto the floor and stuff? Or what does it look like? Well, of course, we're implementing physical distancing here, so there are very strict rules about how many people can be in a room and how far apart all of the desks need to be. Um, quite a lot of people are working from home at the moment in an attempt to try and reduce um, contact and mixing as much as possible. So we have uh, some call centres here, but they don't really look like the traditional call centres you'd be used to because they're pretty sparse. And, in fact, we've got our team split across multiple floors so that if we were unlucky enough to get someone come in who is a case of COVID and we had to send everyone on that floor home, it wouldn't uh, dismantle the entire operation. Oh, so so we're working some, with smaller teams. There's some sort of redundancy built in and you can lose yes. one layer and then you've still got the others operating. And But seriously, is it, right. is it like big computer screens everywhere or is it just sort of workstations? So, yeah. Look, in the command centre, there are computer screens the up. The command so centre? Okay. Yes, the command centre, uh, the state emergency centre. So they've got screens up, so the news runs 24-7. We've got a map of current cases around the world. We've got the organisational structure, so you know who's in charge of everything. Uh, and, you know, everyone's obviously on computers 
um, so that we have the data coming in and mm-hmm. wow. we're keeping track of things in our surveillance system. So, so would you have a big China graph board where one contact or one positive and then you've got arrows going to all the people that they've been in contact and then how far do those arrows go out or how far do you have to keep going outside that original case? So uh, our intelligence team does do some mapping of cases. Um, most of the time, we're hoping that those uh, cases don't transmit to anyone else now that we've implemented physical distancing and now that everyone returning from overseas is in quarantine. So the idea of isolating cases and quarantining close contacts is really to disrupt that ongoing transmission. So, you know, we're cautiously optimistic that at the moment it looks like we're not getting big clusters of disease spread and that most cases um, stop there if we can identify them early enough. And then how far does testing go once you've... So I'm thinking that you've got a case who's positive and then you're tracing. So what's the rule of thumb for testing them? So we only test people at this stage who are symptomatic. And the reason for that is if we test someone who doesn't have symptoms and we test them too early, so in the window period before, uh, between when they've been infected and when they develop symptoms, we might get a test that's falsely negative. So what we do for people who are close contacts is we ask them to quarantine themselves, and that's usually at home. And then if they develop symptoms, we get them tested as soon as possible. Mm. And and would you, could you comment on how accurate the test is now, the COVID nosal, nasal... Nosal. Nosal. <laughs> we want to know about the nosal test. That's the new Australian <laughs> test, the nosal test. Down the back I think it's, yeah. I think it's important to remember that no medical test is 100% accurate and we're doing thousands of tests every day in Victoria. So it's possible that we might get some, you know... Um, unusual results. But the test uh, uses a technique called PCR, which essentially looks for tiny little fragments of the virus's RNA, which is like our human DNA in the nose and throat. Mm -hmm. And so it's very accurate in terms of its ability to detect that virus. So if we get a positive result, then we can generally believe it. Mm. So, Sarah, I mean, you've kind of covered bits of this, but just take me through this, right? Let's just say... Uh, EpiPen tests as positive. She has a she has a, a, a swab. Um, ping, it comes up positive. What happens there from there in terms of contact tracing? Okay. So, well, what we would do is we would ask EpiPen to isolate herself at home. Yep. Um, if she's unwell enough that she needs medical attention, we would help to facilitate that. Yeah. And then we'd do an interview with her. So we'd talk to her about where she's been. And we're particularly interested in where she's been in the 14 days before she developed her symptoms because we know this disease has she an incubation period of up rem- to 14 days. Sarah, she can't remember what she did yesterday. She's looking at me like going, really? <laughs> and I've just been at home, really, and I've lost everything. <laughs> lost my marbles. I guess this is, the, this is the detective work. So, yeah. you know, we use things like getting people to check their calendars or to check through oh. their text messages or, you know, Think about 
where and, and when they might have had contact with someone with this disease. And sometimes it's relatively easy. So someone might have returned from overseas a few days ago and, you know, that's pretty convincing in terms of where they've been exposed. And, you know, sometimes people have been close contact of a case, um, in which case they're often already in quarantine. Um, but sometimes we can't figure out where people acquired the disease from, and that's what we call community transmission, where we're unable to identify the source of their infection. So that's the first part of the contact tracing. The second part of the contact tracing is we want to find out who EpiPen might have been in contact with while she was infectious. Mm -hmm. And generally we think of the infectious period as starting about 24 hours before she first developed symptoms. Uh -huh. And so we need to find everyone who's been in contact with her during that period. And we're particularly interested, like I said, about those close contacts, yeah. so people who have been in close contact. That might be people she lives with at home, for instance. If she's still going into work, it might be anyone she's been in the same room as for mm -hmm. a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. So uh, do, do you then contact those people? Like say she said, yeah, look, uh, Rob and I um, caught up for a coffee uh, half an hour for half an hour yesterday. Do, yes. you, do you then call Rob and say, hey, Rob, you've been, uh, you, we've, uh, we've, um, we're contacting you because X, Y, Z? Yes, that's right. So we would call you and we would say, Rob, we've just identified that you've been a close contact of a case. We wouldn't tell you who that case was. Ah, it's okay. possible you might yeah. be able to figure it out depending yeah. on who you've been in contact with. But yeah. because of con confidentiality, sure. we, we won't tell you who that oh, case was. And we'll say, because you've been in contact with a case, you need to quarantine yourself at home for the next 14 days yeah. and you need to monitor yourself carefully for symptoms. And if you develop symptoms, it's important that you get tested. And we'd check in with you every day to say, Rob, how are you feeling today? Any symptoms? That might be by SMS or sometimes email. Occasionally you might get a phone call. Uh, and so we just keep an eye on what's happening with you. And if you do develop symptoms, then we would help advise you where the nearest place you can get tested is and then we'd follow up the results of that testing. That's a lot of work. It is. <laughs> it is a lot of work and there is a big team that's involved um, who are doing this and they're doing an absolutely fantastic job. Wow, that's wonderful. So you're an ID physician, so infectious diseases physician. Um, How has life changed for you? Yeah, life has changed quite a lot. Um, the work I'm doing here is quite different, I guess, to my day-to-day. -day. So in my life before I started at the department, which is only a month ago but feels like a long time ago, I was uh, doing research and teaching at Monash University and running a travel clinic at the Alfred Hospital. So that, so, travel, that travel clinic's a bit snoozy now. <laughs> yes, so um, it's, it's been True. delayed True. indefinitely at this point <laughs> uh, while there's no one travelling. So, and, and Sarah, how did you ever get into infectious diseases? Where, what's the trigger? What's your background? So uh, my interest in infectious diseases probably started back in about 2008 when I spent some time in Timor-Leste as a medical volunteer. Mm. And I was overwhelmed there by the sheer number of people who were suffering and some cases dying from preventable infections like tuberculosis and typhoid and malaria. Uh, and I remember thinking this might have been what it was like to be a doctor in Australia, you know, kind of 60 or 70 years ago before we had good public health and vaccinations and antibiotics and all of the modern disease surveillance systems that we have. Um, 
And my interest in infectious diseases has taken me a lot, lot of interesting places, mm. um, both overseas and within Australia. I spent a couple of years in Darwin. Uh, and the more I've seen and learnt about infectious diseases, the more I've become aware of, I guess, the disparities that exist mm. even in our own country where there are subsets of our population, yeah. like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and migrants who are still disproportionately affected by infections. Do you know, Sarah, I've noticed uh, the difference between uh, pre-COVID and COVID. Um, you know, infectious disease physicians used to be kind of the rock stars around the hospital. That's one around, cups of coffee, you know, in their hands. They'd reflect about, you know, the old days and they've great stories. You know, they're really affable. And now they're right yep. off their feet. You know, yep. totally different. They're looking really sort of stressed uh, with uh, good reason, of course. And finally, I've got two questions, Sarah. Um, if um, For a message for um, our listeners about how we're going and flattening the curve, the good old curve, and mm. and my second question is, is there anything good that's come out of the COVID um, at pandemic for either you or mm. society? So there's just two mm. questions before we finish. And you've got 30 sure. seconds. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. You can take <laughs> as long as you want. <laughs> so, look, I think in terms of the curve, I think what the Australian community has done in embracing uh, physical distancing and reducing mixing with other people has been very successful in flattening the curve. And I think the other key components to doing that have been identification and isolation of cases and quarantine of people who have been exposed so that um, case and contact tracing that we're doing is a really important component. Uh, I think the key messages are, you know, people should only leave their homes to shop for what they need, for medical care, for compassionate needs, to exercise and to work or study if they can't work or learn remotely. But mm. staying at home will really help to protect our health system and save lives. Good hygiene practices are also essential. Um, washing your hands regularly with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Hand sanitizers can also uh, work if they contain 60% alcohol or more. And people who have fever, cough, shortness of breath or sore throat who meet the testing criteria should go and get tested for COVID. You know, you can't say that message often enough. Mm. I mean, just in my household, you know, it's trying to get teenagers and they're lovely, lovely kids and very conscientious and all those sorts of things, but trying to get teenagers to wash their hands every time they've been outside, you know, it's not easy. And it's not easy for me yeah. either. Like I have to, it's this, I almost feel like I've got to put a sign, like a behavioural modification sign at the front door saying, wash hands when coming inside, just, just to remind myself because mm. it's such a change. Yeah. Yeah. And and finally, anything good that's come out of the pandemic for you or society, whatever? I think something that has pleasantly surprised me, I think, is the way that Australians have embraced the restrictions that yeah. have been placed upon them. And, you know, I, I think we're social creatures and kind of restrictions that we've placed in terms of physical mm -hmm. distancing are, are tough to swallow, yeah. um, even though we know it's logically the right thing to do. But if everyone does it, then we can continue to control this disease. And we've seen what's happened in other countries where these measures haven't been implemented early enough or strictly enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, you know, if we all work together, we can really make sure that our vulnerable Australians are protected. Mm, yeah, good point. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today and keep up the great work in the Department of Health in Victoria and um, all the best. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Okay, on the line, on the blower. We've got Associate Professor Tom Kotsimbos. I'm going to see if I can do this. Hang on, I'm going to do this and this. Professore, are you there? <laughs> Maestro, come va? <laughs> va bene, grazie, va bene. E tu? Eh, va bene also. <laughs> oh, can I just say that... Uh, just as by way of introduction, I started doing Italian about a year ago. Tom started doing it about uh, two months ago, and he's totally overtaken me, so I'm incredibly envious. But Tom, we're not here to talk about Italian. We're t- here to talk about, the um, obviously, the pandemic, and uh, you are really in uh, a prime position to comment on it, given that you're a spiritual physician, you've got a PhD in uh, immunology. Is that, that right? Did, is that correct? Yep. Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, you were the leader of the uh, H1N1 task force with the Thoracic Society. So, I mean, just tell us what we don't know. Tell us some things that we really should know and maybe haven't heard or you need to reiterate about the, the pandemic. Oh, what you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what okay. we don't know as a society. What are the things that we as a society well, kind of there, need to come to there are, there are many things about this virus that are um, things that we knew about but didn't really know about until it blew up the way it has. Right. So one thing perhaps is that, you know, we've been planning uh, for a pandemic since 2010 after the swine flu thing, and everyone's money was on... Um, avian influenza, which, by the way, had a mortality in the uh, in the little clusters of outbreaks uh, that had occurred of yeah. about thirty to forty percent. Really, so that was the big yeah. It was huge, wow, but it didn't. Know you know, there was all the culling of the chickens and all the markets, and the, but people took that very seriously, and that sort of started the whole thing about pandemic planning and how do we uh, think about this when it really takes off. And it became very clear that. You know, given all the scenarios that were being played out, the main thing was to have some structure, but to be incredibly agile and adaptable with what was going on. Because it was all about getting access to quick new information and adjusting our response. And in fact, uh, COVID has shown us that. Um, The coronavirus is a virus that's very related to the SARS virus, and that's also not too distant to the MERS virus, and these are all recent outbreaks. So that's one thing to uh, Mm. think about, that this isn't the first time this has happened. MERS is still grumbling along in the Middle East. SARS happened in 2003, I believe. Um, the big difference between the three of them in, the, in an epidemiological sense is that SARS really only infected people once symptoms were there. And if you remember, there was the whole thing about the super spreaders. Yeah, yeah. And because the linking of spreading was so, was so closely coupled to symptoms, they were able to control it. And I've just heard Sarah McGuinness clearly explain the importance of case and contact tracing, but particularly case tracing. So that's why SARS was able to be controlled so quickly. And it's interesting that the countries that were most hurt by SARS were the ones that had the best incidents um, to, to deal with uh, the COVID outbreak, so particularly Singapore and so on. And, mm-hmm. and Hong Kong. Do you and mean I the, think 
they're kind of they have got a long memory in terms of they well, they, 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 built, they were so scarred by yep. what had happened they yep. built in deep systems yeah this could happen again how are we going to protect ourselves so to go back to my previous point the structures that were mm. thought about were embedded in their in their public health systems and the flexibility within those structures, the agility to respond was also embedded. So there were quick response times, and they knew what they were going to do, and they did it quickly. And that's why, uh, if you like, the, uh, the public health measures were so strong mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. The other thing about the coronavirus is we have four coronaviruses that commonly circulate um, and cause the common cold. Yeah. And so this has probably happened in our history several times before. But what happens is that... These viruses that are essentially viruses that are in uh, bats and, and some uh, some uh, mammals, mm. they cross the species barrier. When they first cross, there's a big disaster because if they can infect humans, then obviously people aren't naturally immune, and yeah. those that aren't immune and get very sick will uh, will not pass on their genes, and those that do survive pass on their genes, and then you gradually over time get to a, a symbiotic relationship, and that's what happens, has happened with those first four. Yes. They just cause the common cold now. These yeah. ones are new, and because they're new, and because they're in, um, infecting such a large part of the population, and because there's no prior immunity, then we're seeing the effects of that. Yeah. So, so um, Tom, EpiPen here. Um, Hi, no, it's EpiPen. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. So you talk about the preparedness. How how prepared were we? How Has the background preparation worked? Was Were we ready for this? Well, it's a tricky question. I'd have to say we were we were prepared in, in, in many senses, but we weren't prepared as well. Having said all that, because it's very hard to be prepared in a specific sense. Having said that, though, the government has done a pretty good job in dealing with this, in, in making the calls it, it had to make, in particularly protecting our island continent when it was most important to do it early on. So in a, in a functional sense, yeah, that perhaps we were very prepared, and uh, that's how it's played out. <clears throat> I think the key thing now is the ongoing vigilance, because all these... Uh, social distancing, distancing and, and public health measures to reduce, if you like, spread, don't necessarily deal with the virus. It just reduce the, um, the, the, uh, the propensity for infection. The virus doesn't necessarily go away. Now, if you do it really well, you may be able to eliminate it in a, in a particular area, but we're connected to the world. So... Mm. That's that's when when the government now is really starting to think about what's the end game here. How are we going to see this through? Uh, and and Tom, from a clinical perspective, why mm-hmm. is this giving us this horrendous viral pneumonia? What what's happening there? Mm. Well, it's a that's a really good question, and uh, and there's been a lot of thought about that. And look, talking to colleagues in Europe and uh, uh, particularly France and the UK, this isn't this isn't a usual viral pneumonia. This is quite unusual in that what happens is there's quite a, there's, there's quite a, a, a biphasic um, pattern to this illness. So people tend to get uh, an initial syndrome, which involves often fever, dry cough, feeling unwell, general malaise. And then um, after about a week or 10 days, 
then something else happens, and they get very dyspneic and and uh, breathless and yeah. and short of breath. Yeah, and uh, get into trouble with their breathing, such that they need either oxygen or or uh, if it's very severe, ventilator support in a in an intensive care unit. Now, what's happened there? So there's been a period of of a week where it's you know nothing seemed to be happening, and there's there's, there's at least a few possibilities. One is. The virus has circulated around the body and then it's gone to the lungs and then it's uh, infecting the lungs in a particular way. A week is a little bit long for that to happen. At the weak level, what we tend to see is the immune response starts to ramp up. So the question is, is the immune response playing the biggest role here? And is it being aggressively attacking uh, areas of the body where the virus is and that's manifesting itself as a, as a pneumonia? And the lungs are a very fragile organ, so it doesn't need much to affect the alveolar capillary membrane, that bit that does all the hard work mm. with uh, exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide. That's very, very thin. Mm. You only need a little bit of uh, viral or immunological insult to, to make it uh, very, uh, very inflamed and full, full of fluid and full of cells that then make... Um, give us a pneumonia picture, which makes it very difficult to breathe. Tom, do you so we think it's a combination of the virus and the immune system mm. at the very least. Tom, are you talking about like an autoimmune type of response? Well, not necessarily autoimmune, immunopathologicals. And we see this in a, in a lot of other infectious disease where you know, the immune system has two sides to it. It has the wonderful side of dealing specifically with the invading organ. Mm. And then it has the other side where if it, if it for whatever reason, if that's not a controlled response, it's a bit more spread out, then um, there's a lot of bystander damage. I mean, so It's more immunopathological, I would say. Is there a corollary with it? We were talking during the week, you and I, about dengue fever and how that might be a kind of a corollary with the immune response. Would well, that be all? That, well, if, that's, if, if dengue is the corollary, then uh, it, it, it'll give us a lot of cause to think and reflect deeply about um, where, how we get the vaccine right. Because right. dengue, uh, what happens with dengue is you get one exposure and you don't get too sick, and then it's the second and third exposures mm. you get very sick, and that's the immune system. Right. So that's one reason a vaccine has been a particularly difficult to get with, with for dengue because right. Oh, right. Uh, that immunological, getting that fine-tuning with the immunology right. And uh, do, do that's... That's why the vaccines is going to be so important for this virus. But, we'll, you know, rushing it uh, may not be a good mm, thing. We've mm, got to get mm. it right. Do, do you think this exposes some of humanity's hubris that we thought, yeah, we understand the immune system, yeah, yeah we understand infectious disease, and then all of a sudden we realise we really don't? Mate, we're always just swimming in the chaos. You know that, Dr. Yeah, Mel. Yeah, and you, yeah. you do that in, the, uh, in your field. I do it in my field. And if we get a little bit of order out of it and... <laughs> Try and think we, uh, we're winning, that's a good thing. Uh, um, Tom, I, uh, having worked in intensive care for a long period of time in my youth, um, I, I'm fascinated by the positioning of people that are very sick with these, um, this pneumonia where they're lying on their tummy and they're um, yeah, being ventilated. Yeah, yeah good point, EpiPen. Uh, uh, and the reason is the lung, the lung is uh, at a, at a three-dimensional organ, so... If there's extra fluid and blood that's accumulating where the lung is most inflamed, at the bottom of the lung, 
then helping clear that by changing the position to a prone positioning to a front down oh. position helps, uh, if you like, with the gas exchange and then moving it one way and the other. Mm. So on the other it's thing, about shifting shifting the the uh, the fluid. Mm. So one of the things I, I read about too was this thing called a cytokine storm. Um, well, can you explain yep. that, what that is? So I was talking before about the immunological response yeah. needing to be targeted. And what you want is the cells that make up your, your defense system to go in and then where the virus is or where the pathogen is that's invading to very, very uh, specifically secrete all their bag of goodies and mm. some of those are cytokines to mm. that area so you kill off a virus with minimal um, bystander damage. Collateral damage, yeah. Yeah, yeah a, bystand, um, a cytokine storm is when it secretes all that stuff but it's all over the place. Ah. So the, the body gets as much um, of the insult as the virus. Right, right. And that's, the, and that's a problem for uh, a highly uh, integrated body system, obviously. And that's why in some cases... The problem isn't just the pneumonia; it's the uh, it's the it's other organs shutting mm. down the yes. heart, the yes. kidneys, and so on. Um, and Tom, in the paper recently, they were talking about some people that have recovered from COVID and have very low antibody oh, responses, yeah, yeah. and they're w working on a test to finger prick looking at antibody responses. That's that's looking <coughs> like it's not going to go so well. Or can you comment well, about the low antibody levels that some people have? Well, I haven't seen the, the, the study you're quoting in, but I am very aware that a whole lot of companies have uh, pushed their wares through the FDA and the European regulators mm -hmm. to get antibody tests out. And we just don't know how good they are. We've bought a whole lot, Greg Hunter's bought a whole lot um, for Australia, and they're currently being tested now in the, uh, as you say, the cases that have been clearly had COVID to see how predictive it is for the for the for those that have had the virus. It's interesting if if the ones that have had a very low antibody response, that that may tell us that has implications both for what happened, maybe they didn't have a high viral load and they didn't need much of an immunological response oh, right. to uh, deal with it. Or the antibody test that we've got, we're just picking the wrong antibody. We haven't got the right one. Ah. Mm. Or if they got exposed again, the antibody would um, uh, rapidly ramp up in, in what's called an, an amnestic response, and so they'd still be protected. Uh, so there are many possibilities. Mm. Just, exp just explain that. I'm fascinated. An amnestic response. Uh, what does that mean? Um, so memory, antibodies are produced by part of the immune system called beta cells, B cells, B lymphocytes, and they tend to be long-term memory cells. So if you've seen an infection in the, part, in the past, you can have a very, very low-grade antibody. Let's say you've seen um, whatever fever. infection it is. And then when you see it, so when you measure it, it looks really low. Mm. But then you get the infection and they ramp up and clonally proliferate and make a lot of antibody quickly. Now, you don't see that in a testing sense. Oh, right. they're, they're still protected, but you, are, you can't make that correlation with the baseline teeter antibodies. Ah, right. So the B cells remember, in other words. The B cells remember. And, that, and that's a bit of the background mm. for vaccines. That's, that's right. That's mm. right. And vaccines work by boosting that, well, by creating mm. it and then boosting it.
Now, I know there are lots of issues with vaccines and we haven't even touched on it, but if you're going to put your money somewhere, so I'm asking you to make a call now, if you're going to put your money somewhere, and I'm giving you time to think as I'm drawing this out, where, what kind of technology do you think the vaccine would come from? Would it come from this clamp technology? Would it come from uh, the technology where you just chop up lots of different bits of the virus and you inject it? I mean, where do you think it, it'll, it'll rise out of? That's a good question, Dr. Mal. Um, I think there's two parts to the, to, the, to the vaccine question. One is getting the right antigen to target and then the scaling up. So I think the scaling up is probably more predictable and that'll use a system that uh, scales up very quickly. So it's the, the, more, the, the newer techniques, if you like. Mm. Getting the right antigen is the question and I'm just not sure there. And I, mm. and I think whatever we do, I would uh, suggest that it would have to be properly tested before mass uh, administration because... Uh, we've just got to be careful because the immunopathology, the potential for immunopathology here is not small. Yeah, and you mean as in terms of the uh, vac- the vaccine having side effects? The vaccine having side effects, and I say that because of the way the disease. Um, trajectory yeah. has this biphasic illness. I was reading some articles about uh, vaccines and, you know, the traditional thing is you develop a vaccine, you have phase one trials, phase two trials, phase three trials, and then you ramp up. And what I've read now is it's what some companies are doing, their phase one and phase two trials, and we might explain that um, in a minute, but they're also ramping up production in the expectation that the uh, vaccine will be a goer. So they're not even waiting to see if it works well. They're just saying, we just hope it does and we'll ramp up production and we'll eat the cost if it doesn't because it just takes so long to actually scale up, which is, I mean, again, like three months ago, nobody would have been doing this. It just shows the kind of effort that's going into vaccine production. Huge effort. And I think and I think, uh, I think that's a good thing. And uh, just to sort of give you the, my bigger picture view of it, perhaps, that's yeah. a good thing. But remember, I, don't, I wouldn't want to pin my... Uh, hopes on on one uh, pathway. But if we have a lot and we examine them properly, hopefully one will be a whole lot better than the others, and that's the one we uh, carry right through. Now, the the, the the problem there is there'll be a whole lot of others that didn't make it and their investments didn't quite work out. But in terms of the, the public good... That's a, a good way to do it. Professor uh thank you so much for your time this morning. I know you're a very, very busy man, and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much, Thanks, both Tom. of you, Dr. Thanks. Mal and uh, Evie Penn. Bye-bye. Thank you. Enjoy Bye. your Sunday, and happy Easter, and take care. Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> we will. Stay well and stay uh, stay home. Stay yeah. COVID-free. Yes. Uh, uh, that was uh, Professor Tom Kotzenbos talking to us about uh, all things immunological and virological. Man, it has been a packed show today, Abby, hasn't it? It has. Oh. And, and Dr. McGuinness and Rich and G-Spot. G-Spot. It's been a really good show. And the, the, the sad thing, it's a bit virtual because yeah. we're not all huddled in here and being socially friendly. But it works. It it, we're managing. Great. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.